Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to this episode of Tatter. Tatter is largely recorded and edited in the digital media studios at Bates College, access to which is something I am very grateful for. But I do want to say that the views expressed in each episode of Tatter are in no way official views of Bates College. With all that said, here's Tatter. Imagine sitting at a computer with your left hand on the E key and your right hand on the I key. On each of a series of trials, so over and over and over, a photo or a word appears in the center of the screen, and your task is to categorize it using those two keys. The challenge is that you only have those two keys, but you're sorting items into four categories. Two kinds of photos and two kinds of words. On each trial, what pops up on screen is either a photo of a black person's face, or a photo of a white person's face, or a word with pleasant meaning, such as peace or cheer, or a word with unpleasant meaning, such as filth or vomit. Your task is to tap with your left hand every time you see a white face or a pleasant word, and to tap with your right hand every time you see a black face or an unpleasant word. Let's assume you do 40 trials of this task, with the computer, in the background, measuring your reaction time on each response. Then you do something similar, although now, the key assignment for the faces is reversed. Now, every time you see a black face or a pleasant word, you're supposed to tap with your left hand. And every time you see a white face or an unpleasant word, you're supposed to tap with your right hand. And again, for 40 trials, the computer measures your reaction time. What I've just described are the critical elements of what's known as an Implicit Association Test, or IAT. The IAT, and this race IAT in particular, is one of the most widely known tasks in psychology. Alan Alda featured it on an episode of Scientific American Frontiers. Psychologist Brian Nosek estimates that over 20 million people have taken IATs at the Project Implicit website. What's typically found, at least with white Americans, is that they respond more slowly on the set of trials where they have to use the same key for black faces and pleasant words, meaning the other key is for white faces and unpleasant words, rather than the other way around. And in case you're wondering, this reaction time difference, or this IAT effect, happens even when you reverse the order of the pairings. So the effect is not simply due to a tendency for people to go more slowly on whichever pairing comes second. What could be happening is that white Americans who take this IAT have in their heads, to one degree or another, a stronger mental association between black Americans and the concept unpleasant than black Americans and pleasant. And that stronger mental association between black and unpleasant could make it relatively difficult to respond when you have to use the same response key for black faces and pleasant words. But is that the only plausible interpretation of that reaction time difference? And if associations are driving the effect, then what would the nature of those associations be? And how might they matter? Might they even lead to discriminatory behavior? I've had the chance to discuss these kinds of questions with six knowledgeable, thoughtful guests, four of whom are experts on such measures as the IAT, and two of whom are informed outsiders. Those conversations are the basis of the next two episodes of Tatter. This episode is titled, The Humean Stain.
Part 1 As I dive into sharing my guests' ideas, I want to start with a simple question. Why even go to all of the trouble of using a task such as the implicit association test? We don't know our own minds completely. That's Brian Nosick, a psychologist at the University of Virginia and co-founder and executive director of the Center for Open Science. There are parts of our minds uh, that occur outside of our awareness and outside of our control, uh, and that we can hold things in our minds without necessarily realizing that we do that are quite different than what our conscious beliefs and attitudes are. Um, so those uh, the IIT, you know, it, in my own performance at IIT, it, it illustrates that manifestly, right? I, you know, when I was building and running the website, uh, I would do each of the uh, tasks that I built uh, on myself first. And, you know, I, I all of them, I, I would have every one of the biases. <laughs> I'd be like, oh my God, I got this one too. Oh, geez, I got this one too. Uh, and, I didn't have self-insight uh, into those other than this very general sense of, oh, I know what those stereotypes are, but I couldn't point to what, uh, what associations I had in my head. I don't know where to look in my head for those. Yeah, so I'm uh, actually originally from Canada. That's Calvin Lai, a psychologist at Washington University in St. Louis. But my parents were from Hong Kong in China. And so... I spent many of my early years in uh, somewhat of a Chinese enclave near Toronto, and then I moved to New Jersey, United States, where um, suddenly Chinese folks were the, were the minority. And so I, I saw a lot of kind of regional differences in how people thought about race, about how they saw uh, me as similar or different. And I think that was some of the ways in which in my early life, I was just like, whoa, something weird is going on here. So I, I took the IIT um, in uh, sociology class in college, and I started learning all these facts about it. And it, it just seemed like such a useful way to characterize all of these subtle, less than obvious ways in which I, as a, you know Asian American, have experienced bias. Uh, in everyday life. And that's what kind of sparked that initial interest into uh, looking into how implicit biases work and, and what they do. When people take the IAT, they vary in how much they show the IAT effect. Some show a big reaction time difference, some show none at all, some show a difference in the opposite direction from the others. What does that variation reflect? What, if anything, does the IAT measure? Uh, in the simplest terms, the IAT seems to measure how well do things go together. So when I have to make the same response, meaning I hit the same key on the keyboard for both, say, Democrats and good, uh, versus hitting that key when I see images relating to Republicans and words indicating good, the difference in time it takes for me to respond to one on average versus the other on average is some to some degree a sense of how well they go together, the strength of the association. And the there are lots of different ways in which we might more specifically describe uh, what that association means in uh, functional terms. 
right? The, what, and what sort of makes them go together in terms of their associative strength in memory uh, being one, uh, the degree to which they interfere, you know, a, a response is interfered with uh, being a mechanism by which we see how much they go together. Uh, so putting aside the theoretical explanation for the actual effect, they all seem to have this concept of matching how well it is those concepts go together compared to other concepts going together in response. Um, I think generally speaking, I... That's Mike Olson, a psychologist at the University of Tennessee. I am supportive of the, you know, progenitors of the test in the sense that, like, I think it gets at, among some other things, uh, the extent to which people do associate white Americans with positivity and black Americans with negativity. I think, um, you know, people have particularly affective or emotional associations with lots of stuff. When I see my wife, you know, it conjures up warm, fuzzy feelings. And, uh, you know, when people see folks of other races, um, sometimes those people will activate emotional responses that are kind of spontaneous and inescapable that have an affective or emotional kind of quality that may or may not also be associated with particular stereotypes. And, you know, of course, there's lots of stereotypes of various groups. But uh, we do know that the IET is getting a little bit more at the emotional end of things as opposed to the more cognitive end of things. Uh, and yeah, to the extent that, you know, if you're a white individual or a black individual, to the extent that you see a black individual and it activates, that, that face activates a, you know, a negative kind of feeling or a fear feeling or, a, or an anger feeling even, um, you know, that the IET is going to pick up on that. I, I see the IET is measuring... Uh, a bunch of different things, and I think that always has to be taken into account when interpreting what it means. So on the one hand, it assesses our automatically retrieved associations. So that's just not that's not just kind of associations between black people and bad, but also black people and good, white people and good, and white people and bad. And so that can mean that you might show a uh, implicit preference for whites over blacks on the race IIT, but that could be entirely driven by just liking white folks more and not so much about kind of dislike or black-bad associations. In addition to the associations that the racial attitude IIT measures, it also picks up on other cognitive processes as well, such as your ability to control your automatic impulses. So what we often find is that Older people, because they're less able to inhibit their impulses, tend to kind of do worse on that dimension. Uh, and also a range of other kind of non-associative processes that are specific to the fact that it is this kind of non-process peer measure. So technical things like the ability to switch between tasks quickly and biases in how you guess when you can't figure out what the answer is. I don't call it racism. I think that Racism is one of these words where everyone will take it to mean what they want it to mean. And so that's why when you read some of my writings and some of the writings from my peers, we are much more clear about using words like implicit bias, implicit preference, IAT score, because that is much lower to the ground about exactly what we mean. When you say racism... You know, some people might take it to mean all these other things about 
what people are inclined to do behaviorally, uh, what's going on in the mind mentally, and so on. What we get on the IET is a sliver of that, and we want to be clear that it's this particular sliver and not all this other full-blown stuff that you think of when you hear a term like racism. I think the racial IET measures concept accessibility. That's Keith Payne, a psychologist at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. What I mean by that is it measures how quickly and easily uh, certain concepts come to mind when um, paired with uh, either white or black social categories. That's it. This is a good time to introduce a concept that's been central to social psychology for a long time, and that's the concept of attitude. An attitude is simply one's evaluation of a given object. So, for example, I like ice cream, therefore you'd say that I have a positive attitude toward ice cream. I hate snakes, so one could say that I have a negative attitude toward snakes. At this point, I asked Keith to talk about the relationship that he saw between accessibility on the one hand and attitude on the other. Accessibility um, can vary uh, either chronically. Um, in other words, I always have certain concepts accessible whenever I think about white people or black people. Um, but it can also vary situationally or acutely. In other words, if I'm in one uh, context or environment, it makes certain concepts come to mind. But if I'm in a different environment, a totally different set of concepts are going to come to mind. So chronic accessibility maps on more or less to what we talk about as an attitude because I carry it around with me in my head. It's the, the links in my head that connect the dots to, between these different concepts. But uh, situational accessibility doesn't, right? And so uh, I think the IET reflects some combination of both chronic accessibility that's like an attitude, but probably more uh, reflects situational accessibility that's just about the priming from your environment. I also think, I mean, I, I don't know, but again, from a distance. That's Samin Vizier. She's a psychologist at the University of California, Davis. Although she's not an implicit bias researcher, she is editor-in-chief of Social Psychological and Personality Science and a co-founder of the Society for the Improvement of Psychological Science, and she's a smart, thoughtful person. And so, in my opinion, her thoughts on the place of implicit bias research in the context of psychological research more generally is worth paying attention to. My impression is that another interpretation of the data that seems very plausible to me is that people's IIT scores reflect the associations they see out in the world that they don't necessarily endorse. So let's say you took a group of people who were consciously not at all racist and you still found that on average they scored, you know, had a preference or a faster association between white and pleasant than black and unpleasant or than the other way around. Um, to me, the explanation, if, if I knew for sure that there was no explicit racism in their minds, whatever that means, I would say, okay, well, they've they can, their reaction times reflect an association that's out there in their world that they don't endorse. What people are confronted with when they take an IET is essentially a mapping problem. That's Mike Olson again. They've got four things they need to categorize. Uh, in the typical race IET, it's white faces and black faces and positive words and negative words. But they have to map those using only two buttons. 
So, you know, you're doing your best. Your task is to categorize these things as quickly and as accurately as possible. And one thing that might help you to do that is your own attitude. So if black faces do activate negativity, it'll be easier for you to, when black and negative are assigned to the same key, to kind of lump them together. But if your grandmother is racist, she might pop into your head too. And if you um, are aware of systematic discrimination and the historical plight of black Americans, that stuff might get activated too. And that might also help you to solve that mapping problem. So it could be your own prejudices, whether you endorse them or not. And that's another thing that I need to be clear about. It's not a matter of whether you agree with that gut feeling that gets activated. I mean, I get a positive gut feeling activated when I see somebody light a cigarette. I quit smoking 17 or 18 years ago, and I really wish that that didn't happen to me. Um, so it doesn't have anything to do with your endorsement of the attitude. Um, so these things that are just popping into your head to help you solve the mapping problem. One of the things that pops into your head might be your own prejudices, but other stuff too might pop into your head to help you solve the mapping problem, like people that you know who are racist or just negative depictions of black Americans in the media. Uh, so let's just focus in first on this idea of personal versus extrapersonal. It intuitively seems obvious. That's Brian Nosek. Uh, the personal stuff is the stuff that's mind, and extra-personal is the stuff that happens out there in the world. But if we think about it for a moment, then it becomes a lot more complicated very quickly. So the first complication is that it's obvious that all of the stuff is personal in the sense that it's in my mind. So when I perform the IAT, it's not reflecting stuff in the world or stuff out in other people's minds. It's coming out of me. Uh, it's my brain mechanisms, my cognitive operations that are leading to the performance on the test. So there isn't, from that point of view, anything extra personal. And, but of course, you could say, well, well, that's not what we're talking about, right? We're not talking about where, in, where it's inhabited, what brain it's in. We're talking about something about the origins of that information, right? Where did it come from is often what we're thinking about when we talk about personal versus extra personal. So, but then if we go to the other, other end of the spectrum and say, well, okay, w let's take that seriously. Extra personal coming from outside of me, personal coming from inside of me. Where, where is it that it's coming from inside? And often what we get sort of caught up in when we're thinking about that end of the definitional challenge is that we say, okay, well, if you're talking about extra personal as the stuff that comes from the culture, stuff you observe other people do, then what is personal? And the temptation is to say, well, the stuff that's personal is the stuff that I believe, the stuff that I endorse, the stuff that I accept as mine. And that is perfectly fine as a definition, but by that definition, everything measured implicitly or indirectly is extra personal. There is no personal because there isn't endorsement. There isn't acceptance of the thing, the, these processes as you're performing them on measures like the IAT, right? All I'm doing in the IAT is sorting words and pictures as fast as I can. I am not making an endorsement of whether I believe any of those things. It may so happen that the performance on the test is correlated with things that I endorse, right? It may show that I am pro-science uh, compared to the humanities, and I may say, and yes, I also believe that, but there was no act of endorsement to perform the task on the IAT. 
So there's those two extremes lead to real complications for thinking about this idea of personal versus extra personal. On the one hand, that it's all in my mind, so it's all personal. On the other hand, that there is no ever any endorsement, uh, so it's all extra personal. So one of the things that Mike Olson did in collaboration with psychologist Russ Fazio was to develop an alternative version of the implicit association test. And this alternative IAT was designed to be relatively immune to the influence of these extrapersonal associations. So again, the standard IAT requires you to categorize, let's say we're talking about race again, uh, black and white faces and positive and negative um, adjectives. But those labels appear on the screen to tell you how to categorize them. And the standard IAT, um, the, the positive and negative words might be labeled as pleasant and unpleasant. With the, what we call the personalized IAT, to try to focus it more in on the participants' actual attitudes, their own evaluative responses, instead of using the labels unpleasant and pleasant, we just simply use the, the labels I don't like and I like. So it makes it a little harder to conjure up relevant stuff that might not have to do with your own evaluations, like you know your, your grandmother's attitudes or society's normative attitudes uh, when it comes to trying to solve that IAT mapping problem. And you know we find that using this, what we call the personalized IAT, um, does reduce the kind of contamination that um, extra personal information um, puts into the standard IAT. So then does, 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 is, the, is it just that uh, the, uh, say, the racial IAT that with the traditional methodology, is it that even though it correlates with the personalized IAT, is it that it tends to systematically indicate higher levels of bias than your measure? That is just sort of adding a constant uh, to people's scores? Yeah, exactly. I think that's a good way to put it, that adding a constant. Um, and to the extent that there's pretty much normative agreement about how you know black people relative to white people are depicted you know, in the society, that, that constant does tend to get added. So, yeah, you do see uh, the mean level of prejudice on the standard IAT uh, being higher than that of the uh, personalized IAT. So the way we approached it is, in studying this distinction, is to go after what we think the sources of extrapersonal associations are and say, are those things related to the IAT? So when we hear, when we say, what does the culture feel about this particular domain? When we say, what do most other people feel? What do people in my community, what do they feel? Then I am reporting to you things that I perceive as the cultural, the things outside of me, but are things that I know, right? I have some impression of what people in general think of the Boston Red Sox or uh, President Trump or uh, people that are black or white, right? I, there are things that I, I believe about that exist out there in the world about people's beliefs and there's things I've been exposed to. So it's quite possible that the IIT would reflect those kinds of things that I know about the world or at least that I perceive about the world. And indeed, there are two different theoretical perspectives that both accept that those kinds of associations as influencing measures like the IAT, but they come to different conclusions. On the non-attitude side, people would say that those kinds of associations, and let's, for the simplicity, let's call them the extrapersonal associations, the things coming from culture, those are contaminants to the measure of the IAT as an attitude measure. 
uh, from that point of view, you'd want to get rid of those things. No, no, you don't want to get these influences of what I perceive in the culture because that will interfere with the effectiveness, the validity of this as a measure of attitudes. The other point of view, which is the one that uh, I hold, is that those kinds of associations, that I th- things that come at me in the culture, things that I'm exposed to, will get into influencing the performance on measures like the IAT. And from my point of view, that's part of what distinguishes implicit attitudes from explicit attitudes. Explicit attitudes are those associations, those beliefs, those things where I would hold as my own. I report as my own and I try to use as influences on my behavior. Whereas implicit attitudes are all the stuff that has formed an evaluation about that wherever it comes from, whether it comes from my beliefs, things from my intent, my, my direct experiences with those attitude objects, or it comes through indirectly, right? The things that I've been exposed to in the media, the things that I've heard other people say, et cetera. All of that from this other perspective is part of what makes an implicit attitude an implicit attitude. They could still influence my behavior. The, the fact that it came from some other source doesn't matter. Uh, the, if it gets activated in my memory, if it gets applied to the situational context, then I may use it in influencing my behavior. All of that is to talk about the theoretical context. There is a paper that Jeff Hansen and I published in 2008 uh, that challenges both views. <laughs> uh, and what we did was we measured people's implicit attitudes with the IIT for 95 different topics. Uh, we had more than 100,000 participants. Uh, and at the same time, we measured people's self-reported attitudes, what they say they felt about these different topics. Uh, and we had them report on a whole bunch of measures about what they think other people feel about those topics, what the culture feels about those topics, what the average person feels about those topics. So from both perspectives, both that all of these, these extra-personal activities are part of the attitude implicitly or are not part of the attitude, are contaminants to measuring the attitude, both of them expect that those will correlate with performance on the IAT. And what we found across these 95 domains is that those measures of cultural attitudes had near zero correlation across every single measure, uh, every single topic, 95 different topics, 100,000 participants had near zero independent correlation uh, with the IET after accounting for explicit attitude measures. That puts us in a situation of, oh, (laughs) we think that's an influence, but now we have no empirical support even that those those other things uh, are influences. So that really uh, puts a wrench in all of the theoretical debate uh, about extrapersonal associations and what they all mean. And now back to Keith Payne, who has a story about livestock. Sir Francis Galton asked a bunch of people at a fair to guess the weight of an ox. And nobody knew what the ox weighed, but they just made a guess. And people's individual guesses were wildly off in all sorts of directions, but some people were more accurate than others. But when he took the average of all of their guesses, Mm -hmm. it was almost identical to the real weight of that ox. So what's known as the wisdom of crowds effect says that if each person has a little, just a tiny bit of knowledge along with 
as much error and bias as you want, if you average across multiple observations, all of that random error and bias will cancel out, and what you'll get is a very good stable estimate of the true knowledge. So that's the wisdom of crowds. When we're talking about the bias of crowds, we're not talking about knowledge of some factual answer. Here what we're talking about is knowledge of cultural stereotypes and inequalities uh, that surround us in our society. So and the so, stere stereotype is the ox now. Uh, yeah, exactly. Stereotype is the way to the ox. And so if you're in an environment that um, constantly cues uh, racial stereotypes, maybe you're in a place that's highly segregated and unequal and all of the professionals you see around you tend to be white and all of the uh, service workers tend to be uh, people of color, just spending time in that environment is probably constantly cueing or reminding you of the stereotypes in our society. Before we embrace the idea that the IAT measures anything, we need to grapple with the question of reliability. And there the issue is, to what extent do IAT scores reflect a signal, something systematic, as opposed to noise, random variation, random measurement error? One way to think about this is in terms of test-retest reliability. In the simplest case, we would administer the IAT to the same sample of individuals on two different occasions and look at the scores. Insofar as IAT scores reflect something systematic, we might expect that there would be some consistency. That is, the individuals who scored highest at time one would also tend to score highly, more so than the others, at time two. I asked several guests, beginning with Calvin Lai, just how well the IAT performs in terms of test-retest reliability. First off, I, I, I'd like to um, take a side path and, and do mention that the reliability internally, in terms of within a single time point, is actually pretty good. It's around 0 0.70 for internal reliability, which is how consistent you are internally within a given uh, time that you're taking the IIT. Where it's a fair bit worse is in this question of test-retest reliability. If you take it once, what will it look like when you take it again sometime later? Um, and the latest meta-analytic estimates, which is um, the kind of estimate you get when you uh, put a bunch of studies together, uh, is around 0.4 to 0.5, uh, compared to about 0.75 for self-reported questionnaire measures that are assessing similar things. And I have a couple takes on what that might mean. Um, so first off, and just in terms of understanding and calibrating what reliability of around 0.4 is, that's about the reliability of a blood pressure measurement. And so a lot of times you'll go to the doctor, you'll get your blood pressure checked. It might be a little high and they say, well, this is just one time point. What matters is if you take it a couple times and it's consistently high. And I, I think that in, in that way, the IAT is similar. It's, it's not super reliable, um, and, but it's not kind of so unreliable that it's not picking up on some signal. Now, one of the, the difficult questions for researchers on this topic is what that low test-retest reliability means. On the one hand, it can be something bad about the measure, the IAT itself. 
that it's just a noisy measure and it's not picking up on that much signal. But in some ways, maybe that reflects something about the fickleness of what these implicit biases are like, that they do flit around moment to moment based on the kind of situation that you're in. Uh, and to this day, I don't think there's a clear resolution about which of these accounts better explains why the test retest reliability is what it is. The IIT does not achieve the same degree of test-retest reliability as self-report does. And that is characteristic in part of what exactly what you said of, of measurement error, that the uh, performance tasks like this uh, have a harder time achieving uh, strong test-retest reliability because they're making inferences based on task performance that are influenced by a variety of different things, not just uh, the construct of interest. And so there will be uh, lower test-retest reliability and more influence of random error just because of that, how quickly people can respond, how tired they are, how well they're paying attention, idiosyncratic characteristics of the stimulus ex exemplars, et cetera. Uh, so all of those will reduce uh, because of random measurement error. The other element that's interesting to consider uh, in a substantive way for that level of test-retest reliability is the extent to which the IIT is measuring a trait versus a state. So is it the case that we're measuring a consistent concept every time someone goes back and completes the IIT? Are they revisiting the same cognitions uh, that are influencing their performance today as they were last month? Or is it being influenced by a variety of different cognitions based on what's accessible, what's been primed, what, how those things uh, just evolve naturally over time, et cetera? And there is evidence that there are both state and trait influences on the IAT. A challenge with uh, answering that clearly is, the, is estimating measurement error. So it's possible that you could mistake uh, trait or state influence for random error and vice versa. And so the real effective ways to parse between trait, state, and error uh, would show would have mechanisms to demonstrate the validity of the first two. Uh, and that that evidence is insufficient right now to under, to have a very strong understanding of the trait versus state nature of of implicit measurement. My sense is that for both the IAT in general and the, the racial IAT in particular, test-retest reliability is well below what you'd expect of any practically useful psychometric instrument. Um, That's Jesse Single, who's actually a journalist. He's written about the IAT and has been critical of some of the claims that have been made by IAT researchers. You can take the IAT, the race IAT once, and then take it again and get pretty different answers. Now, if you're a white person, um, my sense is most white people in the U.S. who take it will be told they are biased against darker-skinned people most of the time. So it's probably not likely that it'll flip like a coin flip, like you're racist against white people, you're racist against black people over and over. You'll probably be somewhere in the positive range, which means you're biased against uh, darker-skinned people. But within that, it, my sense is it will usually flip a lot from mild to moderate to severe or, or whatever specific language they use. As you might imagine, one question that has frequently been addressed in the research literature is the question of how well IAT scores predict behavior. 
For example, do scores suggesting stronger implicit bias on the race IAT correlate with more discriminatory behavior? We're going to talk about that question in the next episode, but for now, I ask the guests whether the IAT might, in their opinion, still have value even if it didn't predict behavior, and if so, how? Yeah, I could imagine a couple of of potential sources of value, even if the individual difference part of it isn't very valid or doesn't predict behavior. That's Samin Vizier. So one is just at a group level, maybe that group is just humans or or maybe not all of humans, but at least adults in, in certain kinds of societies. It, if it's, there's a pretty big main effect that people have a faster reaction time when they're associating, say, black with unpleasant, white with pleasant, then vice versa, that main effect at the group level is itself interesting, I think. And I think that's a worthwhile finding, if that's robust. Let's assume that that's true for certain populations at least. Um, then there become that if you're if you're trying to make claims about absolute levels, then of course like the representativeness of the group and generalizability, those become really important issues. And that's where I don't know the literature well enough to know how well they've sampled and so on. It's also of course really important to rule out potential artifacts and so on when you're trying to interpret like absolute levels of reaction time, things like that. But if we if we can address all those things and still show, look, there's on average among this population, people have an easier time or they react faster when they're pairing. Uh, white with pleasant and black with unpleasant and vice versa. I think that's an important finding in itself. It's almost like, and I think, so first, it's scientifically interesting and valuable to know that. And second, I think it could have applied value in the same way that many, like, kind of optical illusions or other kinds of illusions help people to understand that sometimes their perceptual system does things that their mind doesn't know, isn't aware of. And this could be a similar thing. Like, Maybe it's just your finger movements, but still your fingers are doing something that your reflective mind wouldn't endorse, wouldn't, that doesn't make sense, right, according to your values or your beliefs or whatever. And that can be a very powerful demonstration to people about the limits of conscious awareness and of values and beliefs and so on that, you know, they have the potential to be disassociated from your actions, at least at this very, um, I don't know, I don't want to say superficial level, but it's not finger movement isn't exactly an action that's super important. It's not like a hiring decision, but it's still as a demonstration, I think, of this whole idea, the the concept of dissociation between conscious values and actions. I think it could be a powerful demonstration. Well, I would say it would not have value insofar as psychology is strictly the study of behavior. That's Mike Olson again. Um, but psychology isn't right. strictly the study of behavior. And sometimes we do have questions about just simply how the mind works. And, you know, it's great to ask these basic questions that may or may not have any implications for the real world, just for the sole satisfaction of learning more about how the most complex object in the known universe operates. Um, so, yeah, and, the, and one of the greatest things about the IET is its flexibility. You know, we've been focusing on the race IET, but you can construct all sorts of IETs to look at different kinds of associations, whether they be specific traits with specific groups, mm-hmm. uh, getting out of prejudice altogether. You can look at associations involving specific objects. Uh, and what's nice about the IET from the start is that it doesn't require verbal responses, and it gets at automatic qualities of these cognitions, which are interesting and important in their own right. There was a recent paper in a journal called Behavior Research Methods, which found that kind of many classical tasks in cognitive psychology, like the Stroop task. 
So if you never took Psych 101 or if you've forgotten, the Stroop task is a color naming task. On each of a series of trials, you see a word and those words appear in different colors. And your job is to name the color in which the word appears. The tricky thing is, in the classic Stroop task, the words themselves are the names of colors. So you might, for example, see the word red printed in red. And then later you might see the word red printed in blue. And in the second case, your job would be not to read the word red, but to say blue. The Stroop effect is a very reliable tendency for people to respond more slowly when there's a mismatch between the content of the word and the color in which it's printed. So you take longer to say blue when the word red is printed in blue than when the word blue is printed in blue. In any case, this is a very robust effect. In fact, your Psych 101 instructor may have actually used it as a demonstration because they were pretty confident it would work. Many classical tasks in cognitive psychology, like the Stroop task, were all great at finding robust and replicable experimental effects about how the mind works, but are often difficult for using them to predict individual differences. And that's not a coincidence, because what makes these classic cognitive tasks such good experimental tasks is that they minimize variability between people, so you can really see what's going on in the task. Uh, but that same property, minimizing variability between people, also makes it bad at predicting variation between people, that is, predicting these individual differences, such as whether or not people will discriminate or not. And so perhaps with the same logic, the same can be said for the IET, which also often finds these kind of large experimental effects at the group level, but it's a little bit trickier to use at the individual level. You know, and I think that we, if we were only talking about the interesting scientific questions that the IAT allows us to pursue with this, you know, this interesting tool, that you know, we we, we, not, we may not even be having this, you know, conversation right now because a lot of the reason that we're having all these conversations about the IAT is because of claims that have been made about it beyond just simply how the mind works. And right. So, you know, I I get a little <laughs> personally. Jealous. I mean, because honestly, like, you know, I'm a person involved in this research, and I come from a lab that developed priming measures uh, as measures of mm-hmm. automatic evaluative associations. And you know, the IAT folks were a lot better at marketing this tool. Mm-hmm. They we don't have a priming website. We don't even have a fancy name for it. Um, it just comes from priming from the cognitive literature from back in the '60s. You know, and um, you know, the generative the the, uh, the, pers- <laughs> the word I'm looking for. The purveyors of the IAT, you know, they've also done a lot to promote it. You know, not only as a scientific tool, but also as a public awareness raising tool. It's also a, a potential tool for social change. Uh, and I think in those contexts, that's where some of the claims sometimes get a little lofty, and some of the implications of those claims, you know, get a little hidden and cryptic. In 2015, Tony Greenwald, Mazarin Banaji, and Brian Nosek published a comment titled, Statistically Small Effects of the Implicit Association Tests Can Have Societally Large Effects. In turn, Frederick Oswald, Gregory Mitchell, Hart Blanton, James Jacquard, and Phil Tetlock published a reply titled, Using the IAT to Predict Ethnic and Racial Discrimination, Small Effect Sizes of Unknown Societal Significance. And in this reply, Oswald and colleagues 
challenged the greenwall banajian Gnosic interpretation of the data, largely because of questions about the extent to which the IAT can correlate with and thus actually predict behavior, an issue, again, that will be addressed in the next episode of Tatter. For now, I shared a quote from this reply with several of my guests in order to get their reaction, and I'm sorry to say, because I'm sure you're curious, I didn't have time to pose this question to Nosik, but I did present this quote to several other guests, and here are their thoughts, beginning with Mike Olson. And here's the quote from Oswald and colleagues. The great majority of white Americans who have taken the IAT uh, have been classified as anti-black. This then points to an epidemic, either of unconscious racism or of false positive accusations of unconscious racism. And the quote ends. What's your reaction to that quote? <laughs> My reaction to that is, um, is there a C option? <laughs> what would that be? The C option would be, first of all, none of this stuff is unconscious. Um, there's no evidence that the IAT is actually tapping it, some t- tapping into something that people lack conscious access to. And in fact, there's the opposite evidence. There's evidence that people are aware of these biases. Now, what I think, and what I think the literature shows, is that even though people can tell you, yeah, I, I probably have these biases, and when you really hit them over the head by being, you know, to be honest, when they report explicitly what their biases are, you know, the IAT and their explicit measures will, they'll correlate. But they may not be aware of how their biases influence them uh, in any given judgment. They have this assumption that they see the world the way it really is, and their biases do influence how they see the world. I think the best example of that is work done by uh, Kurt Hugenberg at Miami University. And he has shown that, for example, white Americans... And to be clear, the effect that Mike is about to describe was more pronounced among white Americans whose IAT scores suggested the highest levels of pro-white or anti-black bias. Are more likely to interpret an ambiguous facial expression on a black man as more hostile than that exact same expression on a white man. And we know they're the same expressions because they're computer-generated faces. I don't think people are aware that their race biases are coloring the way they interpret ambiguous facial expressions. I think people are aware of their biases uh, and you know, being confronted with them with some scientific test with this air of legitimacy that's posted, you know, hosted at the Harvard University website, mm-hmm. it does hit them a little harder than just their own kind of meandering sense of like, yeah, I'm probably a little bit racist in my heart of hearts, and I reflect on it in a safe space, and I can kind of admit to it, but it's a little bit more real when some Harvard test tells you that, and that's where I think the defensive reactions come. But I would disagree with um, the second option, that the IET is actually, or the feedback that people are getting from Project Implicit IET is overall, like at the mean level, false. Because I think most white Americans are racist. (laughs) And I think that the data about how they behave reflects that. I mean, when you look at more real-world behaviors, for example, audit studies where you look at uh, employment discrimination, where you send out dossiers to real employers, and they're identical in every way. It's just that one guy's name is Jeff and the other guy's name is Jamal, and Jeff gets more callbacks than Jamal. We know that there's real racial discrimination out there. And presumably it's operating through people's heads. And so that kind of feedback that the IAT provides is reflective of what the mean level, you know, is in the population in terms of the prejudice. At the individual level, sometimes I think it might be a little off here and there. But, yeah, I think most white Americans have automatic negative racial biases. I think a lot of Americans are consciously racist. So to me, the fact that 
the average American adult scores, you know, has an anti-black bias on the AT, doesn't suggest that they have to have racism that they're completely unaware of. I think a lot of Americans are racist in ways they're perfectly aware of. So I think one thing that gets lost in a lot of the implicit stuff, too, is that explicit racism is still alive and well. And maybe, you know, of course, there's some context where people won't admit it, but that doesn't mean they don't have conscious awareness of it. They might not label it racism, but I think you could get them to admit it in ways that are not too far from the label racist. So I guess that, to me, that's a false dichotomy. Yeah, so I, I agree with, or I disagree with the premises of that quote on two grounds. Uh, first, I, I, it's not the case that the IIT classifies people as anti-black. Um, it classifies folks as showing a relative difference between responding to white folks compared to black folks. That's not the same as being anti-black because you can have a relative preference for whites over blacks simply by liking whites a little bit more than liking blacks. Um, so that's not necessarily anti-black um, by many standards. Uh, and then the other uh, question of whether or not this is reflective of unconscious racism or false positive accusations of unconscious racism, I think there's some potential, a lot of opportunity for misinterpretation here um, in the sense that um, it's not at least clear to me as a, as a kind of uh, listener to this quote of what is meant by unconscious racism, right? If you ask 20 uh, intergroup uh, relations researchers what racism it is, you might come out with 20 different definitions of racism. So I, I would kind of want to know what they mean when they use the word unconscious racism um, to, to figure out whether I would agree with it or not. I think there's a, a sort of a third answer here, which is, Again, that's the journalist Jesse Single. It could be that there's an epidemic of unconscious racism, but this particular instrument can't reveal it, or that there's no such thing as an instrument that could reveal it in this sort of generalized way. Uh, I think it's likely the case that implicit bias is quite complicated and manifests itself differently in different situations. And there may be no one-size-fits-all general diagnostic test that can reveal how biased or, or unbiased you are. So my worry is that focusing too much on an inaccurate test will just give people misconceptions about themselves and about society. This is more comment than question, but when I look at the literature on the implicit association test, one thing that I think is cool is that here with the IAT, we have this really robust effect. As I tell my students, if you administer the race IAT to a sample of white Americans and you don't find that they are slower when they have to use the same response key for black and pleasant as opposed to black and unpleasant, you may have screwed up. This is a really robust effect. And at a time when there are serious questions about the replicability of many effects within our field, this is what we want, in my opinion, a really robust effect where there is vigorous debate about what the right interpretation is of that effect. And so I asked several guests to share their thoughts on this. Did they agree with me on this point? 
Uh, well, s- since I was involved in the research, I have to say yes. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, on your more general point, yeah, and it is it is a very reliable effect, just like the Stroop is, as another example. Uh, and the debate about what it means, why it happens that way, what explains it, all of that is super productive. In you know, despite the fact that I disagree with a lot of the others' claims, the that disagreement has been very productive disagreement uh, because it is focused on a particular effect that we can observe and we can observe very readily. Uh, And that makes making research progress a lot easier than not even being sure if that effect is there at all. They, in my view, jumped the gun and decided what the meaning was before the evidence was in. And for 20 years now, we've been told these tests mean something they might not mean. Um, no one is denying the pattern exists that I'm aware of, but yeah, I, I'm happy to debate what it means. And, and there's been some really good work critiquing the tests and, and showing we know what it means. We know that part of it is reaction time. We know that you can nudge people's scores around through sort of uh, familiarity effects and stuff like that. But we don't know that a big chunk of a score reflects implicit bias the way it's usually defined. Or, or if it does reflect implicit bias, it also reflects a bunch of other stuff. So I think you're right that, that the element of this story that's good and scientific is that these patterns have been detected and they seem to be robust. The problem is that that next step of interpretation, which I think has not gone well, because a certain story won out very early on that, that didn't deserve the one out necessarily. Yeah, I think in many ways it's a really good example of what we need more of. I think we need more of, yeah, like using established measures that we understand and we would know if we miscoded something because we there's certain validity checks that are just built in. Like if you don't get this, you know there's something wrong. So like I think one problem with like creating ad hoc measures or manipulations for every new experiment is then we don't have a really clear way of distinguishing something that failed because the measure wasn't you know, administered right or didn't work as we thought it would versus the hypothesis is wrong. So one nice thing about the IAT is that there's a few, it would be nice if there were a handful, not just one or two, but like a few really well-established measures that we really know how to detect if someone misused it or if there was something wacky going on. So that's one nice thing about it. And then, yeah, like having an, the effect itself is very reproducible. That's an, that's appealing. But then another aspect of it that I think is really, really a really good example for science, and like this might be because I'm at a distance, so maybe someone closer to it would characterize it differently. But for, as an outsider, so I'm, I would say I'm friends with Brian Nozick and with Fred Oswald, so I, I kind of know a little bit about – I've actually never talked to either of them extensively about their experience with this debate, but both of them seem to be doing okay. Like, neither of them seem to feel like this debate has, like, you know, taken over their life or caused problems for them mentally or physically or things like that. So it's, I think it's an example of a case where it's, like, a vigorous debate that people might get kind of annoyed with each other sometimes, but it hasn't crossed the line into – yeah, like feeling personal or something like that. And that I think that's to the credit of the people on both sides, that they can take a scientific criticism and understand that it's a scientific criticism and they can and they can res- both cri- criticize and respond in a respectful manner. Yeah, so I think that takes a lot of commitment to, the, to wanting to get to the bottom of it. And I think my per- perception from the outside is that there seems to be an honest good faith effort on the part of pretty much everybody, maybe there's some exceptions, but the majority of people involved in the debate 
to try to get to the bottom of it. And that it's not, we're not like casting aspersions and saying, you're only doing this because you want to like take me down or, you know, things like that. So I think that's where we need to be as a field. It would be good to see a lot more of that, of like, oh, you're critiquing me because you also want to know the answer to this question. So we have that in common. And maybe I, I know that it's probably too rosy of a view because I, I'm sure there are things I'm not aware of that go on behind the scenes. But but that rosy view I have of it is what we need more of in science, whether that's actually true in this case or not. As this episode wraps up, I want to mention some themes that I at least see. Most, if not all, of the guests agree that mental associations do contribute to performance in the IAT, but IAT performance is a soup with many ingredients. Yes, mental associations are in there, but so are other factors as well, such as the ability to switch tasks, biases in how one guesses when unsure of an answer, and random measurement error. The test-retest reliability is clearly lower than for self-report measures, but the guests agree that there is some signal there. Of course, just how much noise is there, and how much the signal itself fluctuates across time, is not one where I see clear agreement, at least not based on the current evidence. Whatever the contributors might be to individual-level variation, it is the case that at a group level, though, IAT effects do seem to be pretty robust, certainly on the race IAT and researchers are debating the meaning of those robust effects. Now, I get that Jesse Single is clearly critical of some researchers for, in his view, having claimed to know more about what the race IAT effects mean than the data actually justify. But I'm still of a similarly rosy view to that of Sabine Vizier. We have a robust phenomenon whose meaning is being debated by researchers, and that debate is grounded in the data, and that's exactly what we want in the field. We want more of it. Of course, there are other questions that we haven't even touched in this episode, such as questions of how well the IAT predicts behavior, as well as appropriate and inappropriate applied uses. These are the kinds of questions to be addressed in the next episode. For now, that's it for Tatter. I want to thank Calvin Lai, Brian Nosick, Mike Olson, Keith Payne, Jesse Single, and Samin Vizier for taking the time to talk with me. Go to tatter.fireside.fm for links to information about them and their work. Also, if you use Twitter, please follow Tatter. The username is at tatter underscore rags. And if you appreciate Tatter and want to show your support and at least effectively buy me a coffee or a beer once a month, then go to the Patreon page for Tatter. Pledge levels start at $3 per month. Go to patreon.com slash tatter for more information, and thank you if you go. Whether you go or not, though, I do want to thank you for listening to this episode, and please be well. <laughs>